G'day everyone, I'm Alex, I'm a third year ancient history student and I'll be reading uh, our passage today which is Revelation uh, 8 and 9. Um, it'll be in your handouts and if you want to turn in your own Bibles that's cool as well. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of God's people went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up, a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss, When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like women's hair and their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions, and in their tails they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek is Apollyon, that is, destroyer. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. And it said to the sixth angel, who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. 
and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue and yellow as sulphur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions and out of their mouths came fire, smoke and sulphur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke and sulphur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Thanks, Alex. Well, how do you respond when bad things happen? How do you respond when disaster strikes? Whether it's fire or flood or cyclones, climate change, global pandemic. How do you respond to that? And how do the people around you respond? Your friends, your family? Uh, Do they try and continue on as though it's business as usual? Or is it the end of the world? Well, last year we started looking at the book of Revelation uh, and we saw that it's an apocalypse. It's a God's eye view of the world. We're getting God's perspective on what's happening. Uh, We saw that it's a prophecy, that it's God uh, explaining what is going on now and what will happen in the future. And we also saw that it's the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. In other words, it's the gospel. So we shouldn't be expecting something that is completely different from the rest of the Bible. Uh, This is talking about Jesus and what he has done for us and the implications. And it's all in figurative language, we saw. Uh, Imagery that has been taken up and sometimes distorted by both Christian and popular culture, but it's not saying anything fundamentally different from the rest of the Bible. Uh, And finally, we saw that it is a letter to the seven churches of Asia Minor, uh, or what we would call today Turkey. And so despite our temptation uh, to read it as though it applies immediately directly to us here in the 21st century, that can't be right because it applied to them in the first century as well. Now, in chapters uh, 2 and 3 of Revelation, we read Jesus' letters to the seven churches and we discover what it's really on about. Uh, It's really on about staying faithful to the Lord Jesus amidst the sufferings and temptations of this world as we await the day of judgment uh, and the eternal life that he's promised to us. Uh, In chapter 4, John gets taken up into heaven and this is where we get the God's eye view of things. Uh, He sees God's throne Uh, and all creation surrounding it, worshipping him. And we saw God holding a scroll sealed with seven seals, seven wax seals. A scroll that will be opened and that the whole story is waiting uh, for it to be opened. And in chapter 5, we saw that the only one worthy to open it was Jesus, 
who's depicted as a lamb looking like he's been slain. He's our sacrifice. He's been crucified for us to take our sin. And so we're waiting for Jesus to open this scroll. That's kind of what's driving the whole story at this point. What's going to happen? Uh, And then in chapter 6, we saw the lamb, Jesus, opening the seals. He cracks them open one by one. And as he opens each one, something happens. And we got a glimpse of life in this present age. We got four horsemen uh, symbolising conquest, war, famine and death. These are the four horsemen of the apocalypse that you hear about. But they're symbolising conquest, war, famine and death. And they're emerging to torment and kill people. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 24, he said, you will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. Uh, And sure enough, uh, in Revelation chapter 6, we see the souls of those who have been slain for the word of God. Uh, And they're crying out from under this altar in heaven. How long, O Lord? Crying out for God to avenge them by judging the inhabitants of the earth. We saw the day of judgment about to arrive Uh, But before that happened, we saw all the people, all God's people, uh, being sealed, marked, uh, kept safe, and singing praises to him. Uh, And that gets us up to chapter 8, where we start today. And where we're at in terms of the action is we're waiting for the seventh seal to be opened and the scroll to be read. We're waiting for the day of judgment to begin. But when the seventh seal is opened at the start of chapter 8, nothing happens. There's just silence in heaven for about half an hour. And you think, what's happening? Is Jesus going to read the scroll or not? Uh, Well, yes, he is. But not yet. First, seven angels are given seven trumpets to sound to warn us that the royal proclamation is about to be read. See, the scroll's been cracked open, all the seals... And now you've got these guys who are sort of standing there, uh, ready to announce that the uh, scroll will be read. But before they sound their trumpets, we get a bit more of a glimpse of what's happening in this silent half hour in heaven. Uh, We read in verse 3, Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. Uh, And we've seen this altar before. We saw it back in chapter 6. It was the one under which the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they'd maintained, uh, who were crying out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. So what we're seeing here with this censer Uh, here, uh, is the prayers of the saints going up to God, uh, the prayers of God's people going up to him. 
their cries for justice being heard. And that's why we've got silence in heaven for this half hour. God is listening to the prayers of his people. Uh, And what's the result of God hearing our prayers? Well, it's chapter 8, verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Uh, And at that point, our perspective kind of switches from heaven looking down to earth looking up. And we see these coals that are coming out of heaven from this heavenly censer that the angel swings, hurtling down from God, bringing his judgment on the earth. We see a third of the trees and all the green grass burned up, uh, and a third of the sea turns to blood, and a third of the sea creatures die, and a third of the ships are destroyed. Uh, And then a third of the fresh water becomes bitter, and many people die when they drink it. And fourthly, a third of the sun, moon, and stars are struck, and they turn dark and a third of the day and a third of the night are without light. You think, what is going on here? It kind of sounds like the end of the world. Uh, And certainly, if you compare it to Genesis chapter 1, you'll notice that it is a kind of reversal of creation. So in Genesis chapter 1, you get uh, God creating light and separating it from darkness on the first day, and then if you jump across to the fourth day, he kind of fills it with the sun, moon and stars. Day 2... Uh, separation of the waters. Day five, he's got waters bringing forth the fish uh, and birds fly in the sky. Day three, you've got the dry land emerging. Uh, And day six, the creation of the living creatures. And as you go through the four trumpets, you realise it's kind of doing that in reverse. It's a decreation. But notice too that it's not a total decreation. Because only a third of these things are struck. And it's clearly symbolic, isn't it? Because how can you strike a third of the night or a third of the day? Uh, It's weird, but it's got the sort of sound. It looks like the end of the world. But I guess that is kind of what natural disasters are like, aren't they? Uh, If you've ever lived through a drought or a flood or a fire or an earthquake, uh, through a cyclone through a pandemic, perhaps, uh, it kind of can feel like it's the end of the world. But actually, it's not. It just kind of feels like it. And what we're seeing here with the seven trumpets uh, is not a sort of new stage of history uh, in Revelation, but actually we're seeing a repeat of the seven seals that we saw back in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Uh, And this is kind of how Revelation works. Uh, You might notice how similar the structure is there. Don't try and read it all. Just get the sense of it. Um, You've got the seals, the seven seals that happened before, and they're broken up into a sort of initial group of four and then another group of two and then a long delay and then you get the last one. And the same thing happens with the trumpets. It's the same pattern. Notice as well that... Back in chapter 6, verses 12 to 14, the sun turned black and the moon turned blood red and the stars all fell from the sky and the sky was wrapped up like a scroll. But back in chapter, once we get to chapter 8, verse 12, the sky and the sun and the moon and the stars are all back as though nothing happened. What's going on? 
Well, this is how Revelation works. The narrative of the book is linear. You've got this scroll that needs to be opened and the seals are all broken one by one. And then you get the trumpets announcing that the scroll is about to be read. And it's sort of progressing linearly in terms of the story. But actually, it's going back over the same period of history, the whole time between Jesus' resurrection and return. It keeps going over and over again. Uh, It's a little bit like screen printing, if you've ever done that, where you print stuff with one layer of one colour at a time. And as you put down more layers, the picture starts to emerge and you end up with a Swedish chef from the Muppets or something like that. That's kind of what Revelation is doing. It's going over the same area again and again and again, but adding more stuff in each time, a different element, a different layer. So I guess the question for us is, if we're going back over the same period of time, but we're adding another layer to it, what is this layer adding? How is it different from the previous layer? And back in chapters 6 and 7, we see that the focus is on God's people as they live through things like wars and famines and earthquakes and persecution, all the stuff that Jesus promised in Matthew 24. But now in chapters 8 and 9, we go over the same period of time, but this layer is focused on those who rebel against God. Now, how do we know that? Well, because we know our Old Testaments. Uh, or at least we need to, to be able to understand Revelation. And all the sort of illusions that are going on in the old, from the Old Testament here are all about rebellion. So the whole sense of being hurled to the ground has echoes of Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16, if you want to go and look that up later, where a group of Israelites rebel against God and they're destroyed. The plagues that we get here are an echo of the plagues that God sent on Egypt to punish them for persecuting his people. The hail, the water turning to blood, the destruction of trees and plants, darkness, death, it's all there in the plagues that come upon Egypt. And this is just the beginning. In chapter 8, verse 13, John says, As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. And with the next two trumpets, uh, we see more allusions to Old Testament punishment for rebellion against God. We get a locust plague that sounds very much like the locust plague in the book of Joel. Um, And we get an invasion, which sounds a lot like an invasion of Assyria or Babylon. Uh, all of which are sent by God to punish Israel for her rebellion against him. With these two trumpets now, trumpets five and six, uh, the focus shifts kind of from the natural world onto humans themselves. So when the fifth trumpet sounds in chapter nine, verse one, we see a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. Uh, It's given a key to the abyss and smoke and locusts come pouring out of it. But these are not just your normal run-of-the-mill locusts like they are in Joel, even though they're pretty devastating in Joel. These are actually sort of psycho-demon locusts 
that uh, have crowns of gold and faces like human faces. And they're like horses prepared for battle. They've got hair like women's hair, teeth like lion's teeth, breastplates like iron. Uh, And the sound of their wings is like the thunder of cavalry charging into battle. They have stings like scorpions. Uh, And although they're not allowed to kill anyone, they're allowed to torture them for five months. And their torment is so uh, awful that people long to die, yet death eludes them. The locusts are led by a king, uh, the angel who let them out of the abyss, uh, who's called Abaddon, destruction in Hebrew, and Apollyon, destroyer in Greek. There's clearly something demonic about this. Uh, This is Satan tormenting people. And it seems to be about non-lethal suffering. Notice that they don't die. Some kind of non-lethal suffering, whether it's physical or mental or spiritual or emotional, the sort of suffering that is temporary, it only lasts for five months here, but it's so awful that people long to die, but they can't. And maybe you've known people who are in that sort of situation. Maybe they're coming towards the end of their life and they're in great pain and they long to die. Maybe you've got friends or you yourself have experienced that kind of depression where you think it's not worth going on. Life just feels too painful. I think it's that kind of thing. It's that sort of torment. And then when the sixth trumpet in chapter 9 verse 13 sounds we hear a voice coming from the four horns of the altar that's before God. Uh, And the mention of the altar and God reminds us that all this is actually in response to uh, to the cry of God's people for justice. All this is happening not because Satan is in control, but because God is. And now the sixth angel who had the trumpet is told, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, says John. Uh, And the image is like God sending Assyria and Babylon uh, from beyond the Euphrates to punish Israel for their rebellion. Maybe we're supposed to be thinking of the wars and rumours of wars that Jesus spoke of back in Matthew 24 that would come in this period before the end, this whole period between his resurrection and his return. The horses and the riders have breastplates of red, dark blue and sulphur, uh, the same sort of colours as the fire and smoke uh, and yellow sulphur that come out of the horses' mouths. And they kill a third of mankind. Their tails, like snakes, inflict injury on their enemies, which sounds kind of like the book of Numbers, chapter 21, where God sends snakes to punish Israel when they rebel against him. So what are we seeing in these chapters here? Clearly it's in response to the cry of God's people for justice, but equally clearly it's not final judgment. It kind of looks like the end of the world. It might feel like the end of the world. But we keep getting told that only a third of things are destroyed. And I think what we're seeing is God actually warning that his final judgment is coming. That's why we've got the trumpets. That's what trumpets do. They sound a warning. 
all the Old Testament allusions, the plagues, they warned Egypt. The serpents and the destruction of Korah's rebellion in Numbers were a warning to Israel. The locusts in Joel, the invasions of Assyria and Babylon, they were all warnings from God to stop rebelling against him. We're sort of seeing a depiction of various uh, natural and man-made disasters, but in reality, they're neither of those things. They're actually acts of God. God acting to warn people of his coming judgment. I don't know if you've uh, ever had conversations with your friends at uni and uh, one of them said to you, if God is so good, why doesn't he just put an end to all the evil and suffering in the world? And it's a good question, isn't it? Because there's nothing inherently good about evil or suffering for that matter. We're going to hear at the end of Revelation that in the new creation, God will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So why does he allow things like flood and fires and plagues and pandemics and depression and anxiety and suffering and evil now? Why doesn't he just get rid of it all? Why doesn't he just put an end to it all now? But very rarely does anyone seem to stop to think that God putting an end to evil might mean God putting an end to them. (laughs) Because actually left to our own devices, we're all evil. We're not just victims of suffering, we're complicit in it as well. We're involved in causing suffering to others. And actually, rebelling against God is evil too. In fact, it's the evilest evil. So why doesn't God put an end to all suffering now? Well, because he uses suffering now to warn us, to give us a little glimpse, a little experience of the greater suffering that is coming unless we repent. The suffering of eternity in hell, receiving the punishment that we deserve for rebelling against the God who made us and sent his son to die for us. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. But all too often, the world just doesn't listen. Uh, Have a look at chapter 9, verses 20 to 21. Um, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. God shouts in our pains, but very often people don't listen. Uh, Last week, the ABC published a report on paganism in the wake of the coronavirus. Good old ABC, your tax dollars hard at work in which they explain how difficult it's been for pagans to meet for rituals while people have been in lockdown. This is a real problem, apparently, uh, in Sydney at least. Um, And the Sydney witch, Blaze, points out that Wicca has become much more accessible during the pandemic than it was before, you know, because you can do your pagan stuff on Zoom. And there's been an upsurge in people seeking witchcraft. Looking forward, she says... She's very optimistic about the future of paganism in Australia. 
And she's probably right. (laughs) At least that's what Revelation would lead us to expect, isn't it? That they did not repent of their murders, their magic hearts, their sexual immorality or their thefts. Despite all God's warnings, people often refuse to repent. Now, it's easy to pick on witches, isn't it? But what about Christians? How should we respond to disasters and suffering in this world? Well, I reckon there's three things, uh, three things we ought to be thinking about. Firstly, we shouldn't be surprised by disasters and suffering. They're not the end of the world. They're not a sign that Satan is winning. They're not a sign that God doesn't care about us. No, disaster and suffering are exactly what Jesus promised. He clearly knows what he's talking about. But secondly, it also shows us, as John Piper has pointed out, that while suffering in this world is terrible and limited, suffering in the next world is terrible and eternal. And love sees it that way. Love does not shut its eyes to this world or to that world. Love reckons with the reality of suffering here and the worst reality of suffering there. He goes on to say, we care about all suffering now and especially eternal suffering. And I think that's right. There's nothing inherently good about disasters or suffering. We should care for people who are caught up in them in whatever way we can. But Revelation is telling us that we must not lose sight of the fact that suffering and disasters now point to the greater suffering and disaster that is coming when God's judgment comes upon all the evil and wickedness of this world. Suffering and disasters are a warning and we need to join in God in warning others to repent before that day comes. If you care about people's suffering, you've got to care about that, don't you? And finally, as Hebrews 12 says, all this is a warning to us too. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we long for the day when you will uh, send your son Jesus to return, to bring an end to all suffering uh, and pain in this world, when you will send him to judge the living and the dead. Uh, And Father, we long for that, but we also uh, fear for those around us who don't know you, who are in rebellion against you. And Father, we pray that you would fill our hearts with compassion for them, that we would join with you in warning them, of pointing them to the Lord Jesus, that they might throw themselves on his mercy as we have and be saved from your righteous judgment. And we ask it in his name. Amen. 
Oh, we've got a little bit of time. Uh, so, uh, why don't you have a chat with the people next to you for a moment and just see if you've got any questions that arose for you out of that passage. That might do. Uh, has anyone got a question? Yeah, we'll. What does that mean? What is the uh, bit about they didn't stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk? I think it's just saying that uh, people refuse to repent and turn back and worship God. They keep sticking at worshipping their idols. Sometimes that's in a a really obvious physical sense, like he's writing to a Greco-Roman world where people do literally worship uh, idols of stone and wood. You... We may be in a, you may come from families and cultures where literal worship of physical idols happens. Um, and one of the big themes that runs through the Bible is that if you worship idols, you become like them. Um, they, they become sort of, de- they're dead, they're useless, uh, and you kind of end up like that. Uh, you become deaf uh, to God's word. You, um, you can't hear uh, yeah, you sort of become like them. Yeah. Um, is that sort of getting at what you're yeah. and, um, asking? At 21, it's a they're magic arts. <coughs> uh, yeah, I'm curious because out of like, a lot of things, mm. you still use magic arts. But, I mean, right. <laughs> magic arts is probably not the first thing that our mind yeah, goes yeah, to, yeah. is it? Because yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. So uh, this is not saying these are the only ways in which they refuse to repent. These are just sort of examples, I think, of ways uh, in which people refuse to repent. They don't turn from their rebellion against God, uh, whether that is a sort of uh, secular atheism or uh, worship of idols or practising magic or witchcraft or something like that, uh, Whatever it is, people refuse to return uh, to God, um, even though the disasters should be waking them up. Yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. How would you um, sort of talk to a non Christian about suffering in the fact that um, it's a warning, but also kind of that we deserve it? Like, how would you? Um, yeah. 
Tossing, I don't know. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's important to say that you can't draw a straight line between particular suffering and sin. So you can't go, oh, you've just been diagnosed with cancer. That's because you're a bad person. Um, you know, you're particularly bad, worse than all the other people because they didn't get cancer, for example. You can't do that. Um, but I think what we can say is, yeah, wow, this is a real wake-up call, isn't it? Um, yeah, life, uh, life is really tough. Um, and uh, we, I guess we need to... Um, it's an it's a opportunity to reassess your life and to stop living for yourself, uh, to turn back towards God. Now, that needs a, that needs a little bit of softening up. Um, you know, you don't want to just sort of go in hard with uh, someone who's in the midst of suffering. But you can tell your story, I think, of having known God and known the comfort that there is in him uh, and call on them to uh, turn to him, to trust him uh, as well. Yeah. Yeah. We can't just... Um, yeah, like John Piper points out, we can't just sort of be content with... Uh, managing people's present physical or emotional or uh, mental suffering and keep quiet <laughs> about the fact that actually God is going to judge. Um, we want to bring them back. Um, yes, we care about their suffering now uh, and we care about their suffering in the future too. Yeah. Is that helpful? Maybe, I don't know, maybe that's something that we could talk about afterwards uh, as a group and think about how do we talk about suffering well uh, with non-Christians who are going through suffering at the moment? Uh, how can we uh, weep with those who weep um, but also point them uh, to Jesus as uh, the great comforter um, as well? All right, let me finish there. Uh, and I'll hand back over to Eunice.